Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome to Copfather. I am Craig Brumell. Today I was going to talk about anytime we lose an officer in the line of duty anywhere, it's a, a tragedy. It, it affects law enforcement everywhere. But there was one incident at the beginning of my career, March 14th, 1980. At the time, the Metropolitan Toronto Police Service, a six-year veteran, 30-year-old Mike Sweet was murdered in the line of duty, responding to a robbery call on Queen Street, Queen Street West in the city of Toronto. Mike was shot, taken hostage, and it was it's one of the most horrific scenarios uh, any of us have heard. And joining me today to talk about the entire situation, a very good friend of mine uh, at the time was uh, one of the lead investigators out of the homicide unit, uh, detective sergeant at the time, uh, Julian Fantino. Uh, Julian's gone on, eventually became the chief of the uh, Toronto Police Service. Among other duties, he performed with the OPP, commissioner of the OPP, and a number of other jobs. Here to talk about the insight of what happened and up to today what's happening with, with the case is Julian Fantino. Uh, Julian, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Always a pleasure, Craig. So March 14th, uh, 1980, you're in the homicide unit, and I assume it was something like you just got a phone call. Yes, uh, Dave Boothby, who also went on to become uh, Toronto Police Chief, and I were partners on this particular case. And it was in the middle of the night, and as usually happens, uh, these things uh, require an immediate response. So both uh, Dave and I uh, attended at that point in time uh, directly at the Toronto General Hospital where uh, Michael Sweet had been taken for life-saving emergency surgery, uh, which unfortunately didn't um, save his life. Uh, he was just too far gone. And, and ironically, at the same time, uh, the two Monroe brothers, Jamie and uh, Craig Monroe, were also in the hospital. They, too, having been shot uh, during this confrontation with police. As things would happen, they survived and Michael Sweet did not. So, yeah, it was one of those uh, calls that you don't ever expect. You fear will happen one day, as I always did with uh, the murder of children, uh, so for me, two very significant uh, calls, uh, all of them, of course, any loss of life is a tragic circumstance, especially when violence is involved. I always dreaded calls involving the, uh, the murder of a police officer or the murder of a child. So you uh, obviously your investigative techniques take over. Uh, it's not a time for emotion. You have a job to do. So can you walk through us uh, the moment Mike and his partner got the radio call to attend obviously a situation at this restaurant and bottom line is the synopsis of what led to the point where you ended up going to the having to go to the hospital well um, a robbery an armed robbery uh, was in progress uh, carried out by two brothers jamie the younger of the two and craig monroe who had a long history of involvement uh, with the law to begin with uh, both armed uh, with firearms. One had a sawed-off uh, weapon. The other one had a, a cold semi-automatic pistol. And uh, they herded uh, the workers, actually. Uh, I believe there may have been a patron or two as well. Uh, during this armed robbery, they were after the cash. 
And uh, as it happened, one of the uh, workers had been out uh, at the washroom when all this thing was, thing was going down. And when he reappeared uh, to join his colleagues, he saw that the armed robbery was in progress. And he managed to make his way out of the building and call police. And the response uh, was then uh, something that uh, Michael Sweet and a number of other police officers from 52 Division in the downtown core uh, responded to. On arrival at the scene, both Craig Monroe and uh, Jamie Monroe had uh, everyone under control uh, with their weapons and so forth. Uh, Michael Sweet and uh, a partner went down into the basement thinking that they might find another way up into the first floor area where the robbery was taking place. And uh, at the very same time, the Monroe brothers decided they were going to go down into the basement as well. And as much as uh, Michael Sweet and his partner tried to evade the Monroe brothers, uh, Craig Monroe, who was armed with a semi-automatic handgun, heard a bit of a noise and and took a shot towards uh, uh, Michael Sweet and hit him. Uh, The other officer managed to escape the basement. And from that point on, uh, what followed is really horrendous. Uh, It was basically a a, a hostage taken, the hostage being Michael Sweet, uh, shot and bleeding, eventually bled to death, actually. And uh, for all of his begging to be released to be allowed to seek help, uh, that he had uh, young children, all of those things were ignored by the Monroe brothers. In fact, they dragged him upstairs to the kitchen area at one point in time. And then what followed was a 90 minute or so standoff with uh, with police. And uh, what happened in the end is the emergency task force led by Sergeant Eddie Adamson at that time, he being the son the former chief, uh, Harold Adamson, led the charge and was able to uh, rescue Michael Sweet. In in that process, uh, there was an exchange of of gunfire. The Monroe brothers were both struck. Michael Sweet was rushed to the hospital to the uh, Toronto General where he was operated on life-saving intervention. They tried their utmost best, obviously, and, and we lost them there. So let's, uh, Jillian, it was reported uh, at the time and since that during the 90 minutes that Mike Sweet was actually tortured in some way while they're waiting because I think the Monroe brothers, it was reported, were on heroin and all that. So obviously they weren't of any mind, but uh, there was a report that he was actually tortured during this 90-minute period. Well, I guess the situation was one of torture for sure, because obviously Michael Sweet knew he was bleeding and and he was having difficulty breathing. Uh, He was begging for his life. And I don't know about the torture, but certainly uh, it was very inhumane to the extreme what happened there because they dragged him upstairs from the basement uh, up the stairs onto the first floor kitchen area where he eventually was found. And uh, all of that was done in a most inhumane way, very cruel, calculated uh, actions that obviously contributed to his demise. Had we been able to rescue him sooner, uh, he would have been saved. So let's talk about the uh, operational side of this. At the time, uh, the ETF showed up, which uh, to some is the SWAT team. 
And they showed up right at the, you were able to get there right at the beginning because obviously Mike's partner that got away, put the call over right away. So they showed up and then at the time, the way that the service was structured, there was a, uh, a senior officer, uh, a unit commander who would have been in charge of the situation and the uh, ETF were, were not involved as a decision as to when to go, the green light, I guess we can call it. So there was a debate, a very uh, vocal debate about the ETF personnel wanted to go in because they could hear the officers could hear Mike yelling for help and, and, you know, asking for his family. And this incident changed the way the operational side of things, I guess, are now, including under your watch when you're the chief, maybe you can describe just what had happened. And this brings in the, uh, cause we want to talk about Eddie Adamson on this. And Eddie was in charge, was the sergeant in charge of the ETF team, the gun team who would have gone in. Well, you're right. Uh, the ETF responded to that situation as they did then in normal circumstances to uh, gun calls. And this was one of those areas that fell to their responsibility really to, to uh, rescue Michael Sweet. But in the interim period, a senior officer intervened from 52 Division and he had a different opinion about what should be done. He eventually was able to influence what decisions were made about when to go in and so forth. Then he left the scene and Eddie Adamson, as time was progressing and he assessed the situation to be dire indeed with Michael Sweet, as you pointed out, uh, calling for help and so forth. And he decided that regardless of what other orders or commands had been given to him, uh, it was time to go in and he did the right thing. And I knew Eddie very well. I knew him before this incident, and I knew him when I became the superintendent in 31 Division. Uh, he was one of the staff sergeants that worked with me up there in the Jane Finch area, a, a great human being, a highly committed, dedicated police officer. But the one thing that happened out of that whole incident, I liken it to two tragedies, really. One was certainly Michael Sweet and his family and all of that. But the other one was, uh, was Eddie Adamson, who could never get over this. He had a great sense of guilt about not going in sooner, not having intervened to save Michael Sweet. He took that as a failing on his part and no amount of talking to him otherwise would ever get that out of his mind. And unfortunately, and in, uh, I think it was October 2005, he rented a, a motel room and he had a number of clippings and photographs of that very horrible incident in the room. And I guess he poured over those and, and meditated over those and it weighed on him so heavily that he took his own life in that room. I always think about it as two very significant tragedies, how careless and uncaring people with criminal backgrounds, criminal intent, couldn't care less about consequences uh, impacted so many people in a very, very negative way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I knew Eddie and uh, Eddie was the type of guy you wanted to go in the door with you as backup. And also Mike, Mike Sweet was a, obviously he was a hell of a copper going into a situation like that. Their lives were on the line. These were the type of officers that you and I have dealt with on a regular basis. The 98% that are going to rush in when everybody's running away. Well, that's true. And, uh, you know, th there were a number of other officers that attended that scene who were traumatized. And Dave Boothby and I spent a lot of time with them. 
to not only help them uh, prepare for court, but also to give them some sense of comfort that they did everything that they could in those circumstances. Obviously, there were many very important lessons learned there that have since obviously been implemented and things are somewhat different now, but we're talking about a time when people in those circumstances were just trying to do a good job. And uh, no police officer goes to work believing that at the end of the day, they're not going to be coming home and no family uh, sees goodbye to a loved one who's a police officer that would not expect to have them home at the end of their shift. So you're involved in the investigation. Obviously, the uh, two brothers were charged with murder. Can you walk through us the process with the courts and obviously the outcome? Yes, well, a trial was presided by Mr. Justice Callahan, a very fine judge uh, who was the chief judge, actually, uh, of the Ontario Court at that time. You know, as trials go, uh, everybody states their case and makes their takes their position. But the one thing that I, I remember how important it was for us to have done a meticulous examination of the scene. Every detail was either inscribed in our notebooks or we had photographs. And at the end of that, it was so, so important to us, uh, to the trial, to render a conviction of first-degree murder on Craig Monroe. But what happened there is the defense was that Craig Monroe, who shot Michael Sweet, his defense was that he didn't know or he didn't think he was shooting at a police officer. And we had to reconstruct that scene as if it was a video replay. And much of that was done with exhibits that were found at the scene, one of them being Michael Sweet's hat. And he was obviously in full uniform at the time. And Mr. Justice Callahan, when he commented on the first degree murder evidence that was led, went on quite a bit about how Michael Sweet was dressed as a police officer's dress that the Monroe brothers would have known what a Toronto police officer looked like because they'd had plenty of dealings with them. And then he commented about the hat, the particularity of a police officer's hat, which we're able to show was actually on Michael Sweet's head at the time, and how important that became in the conviction rendered, which was a first-degree murder conviction on Greg Monroe. So all of that points to the importance of being able to overcome the trauma of the tragedy and still rise to do your job as best as you can because there's just so much at stake. And that's what police officers do for all of the criticism and all of the second guessing that goes on, much of it by the cheap seats, if you will. Don't take into account just how much of an effort goes into doing their job and doing it well. They're not perfect, but at the end of the day, these things to me come home because had we not taken the time and if we let our emotions uh, get the best of us and all of that, we probably wouldn't have done this thorough job. So I just want to give a side story. When uh, Julian was chief in Toronto and I was the head of the police union, occasionally I would get a call from a member saying, you know, the chief just went after me for not wearing my hat. And I'm not wearing <laughs> my hat. And he, he's very emotional. Like, I, what's going on? I said, listen, put the hat on. It's personal. And he's got a good reason to believe what he does. And I would say, just, you know, look up the Mike Sweet story. I know for that reason alone, we knew where you were coming from on that. And we would just say, just put the, put it on. It's better you put it on. When you look at what otherwise might have happened, I'm not saying that we wouldn't have risen to convict Craig Monroe of first-degree murder, but uh, I can't ever forget the commentary by Mr. Justice Callahan, yeah. who, who took a pause on those very issues yeah. as the core evidence that, that led to a conviction for first-degree yeah. murder that 
may not have happened otherwise. Craig Monroe was found guilty, 25. Well, he, he got life yeah. at, uh, for first-degree murder, not eligible for parole for 25 years. Right. Jamie was convicted of second-degree murder, also got life, and his parole eligibility was 10 years. But in Canada, we have a, a thing called the Faint Hope Clause, which uh, at about 15 years of, of a 25-year no-parole sentence being served, there is a, an opportunity to apply for parole. So Jamie did his time, uh, came out, just arbitrarily took off to Italy, where he, as I understand it, still resides. Even though he had a life sentence here, he, he left and the parole board didn't catch on to that. Craig Monroe, on the other hand, has been a pain in the butt ever since because of his applications for parole. And, and each one of these is a very, very painful replay of a horrible, horrible uh, situation, especially for the family. Yeah, so let's just recap. Every year he comes out for parole, Mike's family and, and yourself shows up to the hearing. I made it a point to do that, to support the family and just to, I guess, inject some reality to the gravity of the situation. So you, you go through all of this, but you're not allowed to give testimony unless you're a declared victim, which Michael Sweet family would be. I went there to support them. I went there to show a presence. But unfortunately, uh, back a number of years ago, Craig was given some temporary unescorted passes. He screwed that up. Uh, eventually, he ended up in a, uh, in a halfway house in Victoria. He screwed that up. He's just a walking disaster. But the thing that amazes me is how... He was able to self-identify as, as a Métis, uh, an Aboriginal descent. And so they moved him to a minimum security institution out in the area of Chilliwack, BC. It's a healing lodge. And uh, I went there some years back to a parole hearing. And on the Sunday, the parole hearing was to take place on the Monday. On the Sunday, I rented the car to find my way to this location. So I, I drove there and I thought, my God, I'm going to a resort. This can't be an institution. <laughs> and uh, beautiful landscape, beautiful uh, resort homes and whatever. And I'm driving here and I'm thinking, my God, this can't be it. And in any way, I get to the top end, no fences, no nothing. And there is this institution. And uh, I go and speak with the guards and all of that. And sure enough, that's where the man was. It's the kind of place that you pay to go to uh, <laughs> in another situation. I'm thinking to myself, hey, what's wrong with this picture? Wow. What is wrong wow. with this picture? You know, if he had got out, he wouldn't end up in a, a rooming house down in Parkdale somewhere, probably. I mean, we could do an entire three-hour show on the parole system. Examples like that where, uh, you know, something like this happens. But just to go over it again... It was a complete tragedy. Every officer we lose in the line of duty, no matter what the circumstances are, is a terrible situation. But this one really stuck out with me because of uh, Mike. It was probably the first one I, as a member of the Toronto Police Service. And also about the torture. I, I'm using torture, but about his suffering for a long time. And what is pleasing to me is to always hear the story, and I think the story has to be included about Eddie Adamson and his bravery about going against an order, which is very rare, and taking um, his people from the ETF, storming, shooting both for whatever reason, like you said, Mike died, 
these two lived. And the, the story with Eddie Adams announced to be included with the story with Mike because of the tragic end with Eddie's life. Yeah, I remember too, uh, Craig, the response from the medical people at the uh, at the TGH. They were all in tears when when it was all over and done with. I recall the surgeon, the head surgeon that was called in from home. He was actually at the hospital waiting for, uh, for Michael Sweet and the others to arrive. Uh, I recall he came out of the operating room and as you well know, there's the milling of police officers and there's all kinds of media and the place was just a hustle and bustle. Chief uh, Adamson was there, the outgoing chief. The incoming chief, Accord, was there. There's all kinds of uh, other senior people from Toronto Police. The media were there, as I mentioned. But I remember the one thing when the doctor came out, and I've talked to him since a number of times. I'll never forget his words. We lost him. Yeah. Probably the worst. Yeah. Julian, we really appreciate your insight into this. I think it's important to keep talking about stories like this, especially uh, what our friends in law enforcement are now going through. Such a negative venue out there when when we talk about police officers everywhere. Not enough is talked about the heroes like Mike Sweet, Eddie Adamson. We have to find a way to talk about these stories more often and and the heroes. Yeah, you know, it's almost uh, inhumane to see how police officers are are referred to by the usual suspects, if you will. Even in, in political terms, uh, people seem to have lost the appreciation for the fact that, you know, people talk about the economy and they talk about international relations and they talk about all kinds of issues. But, you know, if you remove the dedication, the honor to oath of serving others, uh, where police officers go to danger while everybody's going the other way, and then to see that whole profession, I'm not saying that there's perfection here, but the profession as a whole is maligned very often for political expediency, mm-hmm. very often for dishonest intent. I feel very badly for police officers today because of how they are, in a way, so vilified unfairly, unjustly, for often political expediency. And, and that's just so sad. It's just so sad. Well, I know firsthand, I saw firsthand when we, uh, when I was with the union, we were working together, you were the chief, and I, I, there's no doubt, and I've said this publicly many times, your priority was always the safety and the welfare of your members, your, your officers. We always talked about it, and it was both of us. We just said, listen, let's just do whatever we can to make sure that everybody goes home, and it was a priority, and you have, before you became chief, you obviously had a, a history of working these cases. So really appreciate it, my friend, for you coming on. It's an insight nobody else has. And again, I think we just should find a, a way of just talking about all the heroes out there that are performing their duties. You know, as we've been on the show in the city of Toronto, a few hundred times, police officers have been responding to 911 calls and going to do their jobs the best they can. goes on every minute of the day. Yeah, I, I guess what people need to realize that no profession is perfect, but my God, they do a great job. And But for them, we would be in terrible trouble as we see in so many countries where there's turmoil and lawlessness and whatever, and we just can't allow that to happen. And God bless our police officers for the job that they do. I say that every day, not because I, I have been one of them, but because I appreciate the value, worth, and the significance of uh, what they contribute to uh, an orderly society. Well said, and we'll end on that. Julian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, everybody. You want to reach out to us, go to info at copfather.com. I'm Craig Ramel, and thanks for joining us.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.